0: Well, let me give you the right hand of fellowship. Have you ever heard that phrase? The right hand of fellowship. It's kind of an antiquated phrase these days. It doesn't get used very much. But it used to be a way of telegraphing a a certain kind of social interaction, which is greeting, a warm welcome. And why is it that it's the right hand of fellowship? Well, probably the simplest answer to that is The vast majority of people are right-handed. That is to say, most of us just naturally are born with uh, an inclination that favors our right hand for most activities. Now, some of us are ambidextrous. You can actually operate with either hand. And then there is a significant minority of left-handed people. Now, does it matter As a matter of fact, it does not. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any particular difference in terms of what people can achieve, whether they are right-handed or left-handed. But the norm just seems to be, for whatever reason, that most people are right-handed and some people are left-handed and some people get adept at both. It is interesting, however, and I've read some studies on this recently, because today we are going to be talking about a left-handed leader. And so that's why I'm starting talking with you about right-hands and left-hands, Because I want to share with you some insights today from the book of Judges in our series on the Judges' Cycle about the left hand of leadership. The left hand of leadership. Well, since right hand tends to be dominant, right hands tend to be stronger. And people, for instance, in hand-to-hand combat would generally be fighting with their right hand. That would be the hand in which most weaponry would be in. That would be the hand that one would favor. Uh, Of course, I guess if you're going to be a really good hand-to-hand combatant, you need to use both. But probably what you're going to think is, my right hand is stronger. And so even from ancient times, the right hand has tended to be a metaphor for favor, for strength for what leads or what goes first. So if you want to give somebody a very favorable welcome, and if you want to give them a strong and robust, warm welcome, you extend to them the right hand of fellowship, right? Even if it's shaking hands or clapping one another on the shoulder, it's a way of giving a strong greeting. In the ancient world, the right hand and things that were at the right hand were seen as stronger, You know that in the scriptures, Jesus is described as sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? As he ascends to heaven, he is placed in a seat of privilege and power. Now, you might be confused by that because the Trinitarian concept of God can be a challenging uh, idea. In fact, it's a concept that truly goes beyond, I think, the totality of human comprehension. But it is something that we Embraced by faith, and that reality is that God is one. There's only one God, and Jesus is that God. But that one God is in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the subject of today's teaching is not particularly on the Trinity, but when you have a passage in the scriptures that's describing Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, rather than thinking of two gods or two entities. what you should be understanding in that is that God's strength is invested in Jesus Christ. Or in other words, when God reaches out the right hand of fellowship to you, it's Jesus Christ's hand that is laying hold of you. When God utilizes his strength to achieve his goals and will in the world, it is Jesus Christ who is doing that. In other words, Jesus is the strength of God Jesus is the very expression of God. And so this plays into this uh, metaphorical concept. Now, it's not just in the Scriptures, and it's not just about Jesus. In the Bible, there are many places where you will find that right hand, right arm, right side is referring to things of strength and power, often regal strength, that is, royal power, and martial strength, that is, military power, often utilizes these right-hand descriptions. Now, here's something that's interesting That minority of left-handed people actually makes quite an imprint in the world. Again, I want to make this very clear because somehow whenever you start talking about, well, what's the old phrase? There's two kinds of people in the world, right-handed people and left-handed people. I guess there's also, like I said, the ambidextrous. But whenever you start talking about categories of people, somehow people start wondering, well, which one is better, right? And that's not the intent of the the teaching. It's not the point of the topic. And in fact, I want to reiterate, one is not better than the other. There's nothing wrong with being right-handed and nothing better about it and vice versa for the left. But one thing that is notable is there are many more right-handed people than left-handed people. And yet in terms of in relationship to the uh, percentage of the populace, the left-handed representation among artistic types and leader types seems to be unusually high. And, in fact, as I mentioned, I've been looking at some studies, and there's some scientific evidence that suggests that handedness, so to speak, that is, which hand you prefer or lead with or are more adept with, relates to some brain structures and may even have genetics involved with it. And, again, it's not saying that one is better than the other, but it's an interesting Uh, arena of study for those whose whose, purpose is to study such things. And in doing so, what they found is that many left-handed people seem to be um, highly creative or prone to certain kinds of uh, leadership roles, or at least we find many of them in such roles. There's been kind of an ad hoc attempt to explain that. Maybe it has to do with the world being oriented in a way in which you constantly have to adapt You know, the world is made primarily for right-handed people, so if you're left-handed, maybe there's some kind of novel thinking and innovative uh, attitude that gets developed in you, Um, although that doesn't seem to have a lot of scientific favor behind it right now. It's sort of like pop psychology at work there, but maybe there's something to it, I don't know. In any case, let's talk about what left-handedness meant symbolically and metaphorically in the era of the Bible and in the era of the Judges, because that's actually really at the root of why we're talking about what we're talking about today. As I mentioned, right-handedness was a way of symbolizing and describing strength and power. So left-handedness was seen as the opposite of that. Now, once again, I'm not saying if you're left-handed, you're weak or worthless, and I'm not praising the right-handed, but we're talking about the metaphors. Left hand was seen as something weaker, something lesser, something outside of the mainstream. If you were going to choose a warrior, the idea was choose the right-handed one, choose the stronger one. If you were going to choose a leader, the idea was choose the leader who looks like he's going to be or she's going to be the best leader. So left-hand of leadership in terms of the scriptural metaphor is describing leaders who don't look like what you think they would look like, who don't seem to have the skills and strengths that you would want. And when you think about leadership like that, you find that it shows up in the Bible a lot. I mean, I can think of some examples. Can you? How about there in the middle of two nation's troops gathered on either side of the hills and in between there's the valley, the Valley of Elah and one figure strides out huge, so enormous that you can see him from a great distance. But where's the other figure? You can hardly even see who this champion of Israel is going to be because it's a kid. Some kid coming out. Now, here's a huge warrior clad in armor with, with a spear like a, like a weaver's beam. Have you ever seen uh, somebody at an old-fashioned weaving mill? A huge beam. And he's coming out with all this armor and with this booming voice and all these muscles. I mean, he must have looked like Vin Diesel and, and Dwayne Johnson combined. I don't know. That's some kind of fast and furious warrior there. And yet, the other guy is the one who wins. The classic, right, of David and Goliath. It's the left hand of leadership. In fact, when King Saul says to David, all right, you can go ahead and fight for us. Why don't you wear my armor, the king's armor, the best armor in the land. That's the right hand of strength. But David says, it doesn't fit me. It's not the way I work. I'm a shepherd boy. When I face off against lions and bears, oh my I come with my sling and five smooth stones and this, the great I am, Amen. is with me. Amen. And that's what David said to Goliath. You come out here with all your strength like the great big right hand of the Philistines. But I am here, just this left-handed leftover a kid, except that I come to you in the name of the Lord God. Amen. So that all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's left-handed leadership. And God uses that. God looks for the unexpected one. God likes to elevate the humble in order to shame the proud. God reveals his strength through our weakness. This doesn't mean that God is against capable, strong people. It means that God is calling all people to recognize that all of us are weak. That all of us need him. But some people prefer to put their trust in their strength. Whether it's their muscles or their horses or their chariot or their bank account or their reputation. There's all kinds of ways in which you and I can lean on the right hand of worldly strength. And God is calling us instead to come into his presence with our weakness revealed and trust in him. The book of Judges is an example of God again and again and again using people who've got frailties, idiosyncrasies, weaknesses in order to achieve his victory. And part of this is because many of the enemies that Israel faces in these days of the Judges, back in the Iron Age of ancient Israel, um, around uh, the, the 12 and 1300s B.C., Many of these enemies that Israel are facing look um, intimidating. For instance, I've just described, though it's a slightly later era, a few generations later, I've just described this great Philistine warrior, Goliath of Gath. Not only did they have great, big, strong people in, in the midst of many of these Canaanite tribes and nations but they also often had uh, advanced technology. In fact, early on in the book of Judges, we are told that there is a battle in which the Israelites are, are uh, uh, um, intimidated by the enemy because the enemy has iron chariots. This would have been the equivalent of having tanks coming against horse-bound cavalry. And so they had this new weaponry made of this relatively new uh, uh, um, kind of uh, iron uh, working process that had recently been developed. And so many times the nations were larger. They're, they outnumbered the Israelites. In fact, when we come to Gideon in a few weeks, we'll see that not only did God, was not, God was not disturbed that there were going to be fewer uh, Israelites fighting with Gideon, but he actually tells Gideon, I want you to weaken the army. I want you to cut down the numbers. I want you to come against them with fewer so that it will be clear You didn't win because you had the advanced technology. You didn't win because you had the greater numbers. You won because I am with you. So again and again, we see that in Judges. And why is it that this is, is occurring, that they are constantly coming into these conflicts? Because there's this Judges cycle at work. Now, this is a bit of review. If you haven't been with us in the series before, this brings you up to speed on why we're titling it what we are calling it which is a fairly familiar concept in terms of scriptural study, especially when it comes to the book of Judges and to the broader um, section of scripture that is known as Deuteronomic. It's known as Deuteronomic because it reiterates the values that are expressed in Moses' Deuteronomy sermon, the whole book of Deuteronomy, which encapsulates basically everything that God has called the people to, to know and to believe And to live with this as their foundation. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8.11, you get a great snapshot of the Deuteronomic value. It's the Lord saying, be careful that you do not forget the I am. Do not forget the I am, your God, failing to observe his commands, failing to observe his laws and his decrees, that are being given to you this day. So the Deuteronomic principle is remember God and rely on Him. And the Judges cycle is people forgetting. (laughs) And so it applies to you and I. Here in Judges chapter 2, which we looked at um, last week, we saw the uh, presentation of the Lord Himself in the form of the angel of the Lord, which I suggest to you is Jesus Christ Himself. Coming to the nation and reminding them of who God is and what He has promised and calling them to account. Why have you forgotten these things? One reason that they forgot is that they were not teaching one generation to the next. Parents failed to inculcate in their children the values of the scriptures and the reality of worship of the Lord. There arose another generation after the Joshua generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, if you can remember backwards to our reading, or your own reading perhaps at any point, of the book of Exodus, you'll remember that this same kind of phrasing described the leaders of Egypt and the people of Egypt when the Israelites, the children of Israel, were living in Egypt. You'll remember that that God had elevated one of uh, Israel's sons, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, to be the... Uh, basically, the co regent of Egypt. And during his era, things were good. But that Pharaoh who had elevated Joseph died. And later on, another Pharaoh came into place, and there another generation of Egyptians were living who did not know the Lord and what he does. That you can expect in the world. Although it's tragic, it's predictable. But it's offensive to God when it's among his own people. And here it is among the people that he has proclaimed himself to and the people that he himself has delivered. And so the people, when they forget God, they do evil. That also is predictable. They abandoned the Lord, and so the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Not because God is some raving lunatic of wrath In other words, God said, I must discipline you because you're going off the track. I must correct you, otherwise your error will just multiply. So God's wrath is God's judgment. You see, God is the judge. And what God's judgment about is not about bringing all kinds of penalties for the sake of of punishment, or that is to say for the sake of some kind of uh, um, desire to to carry out vengeance out of God's grand ego, but rather, God wants to correct what has gone wrong. And so, though God is the judge, this is how God brings his judgment into the world. This is how God brings his word into the world, through people, people like you and me. And you say, well, I'm not perfect, neither are the judges. But God's strength is perfected in our weakness, according to 2 Corinthians. So the Lord raised up judges who saved the people out of the peoples that were plundering them. In other words, who saved the children of Israel from the enemies that were around them. But look, it cycles again. They didn't listen to their judges. And here, this is a very good literal translation of what the text actually says in Hebrew. The way that the people disobeyed is they whored after other gods. As I said, often the text of Judges is very blunt. And it frequently utilizes this sexualized language to describe how God sees people's idolatry. It's like infidelity in a marriage. It's like sexual carnality of the grossest kind. God says when you are going after these other gods, quote-unquote gods, these idols of the people around you, you, you want to be married to them. You want to be intimate with them. You wanna bear their children. And so you're betraying me to go off and be with these, 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 these Johns that you're tricking yourself out to. And indeed, this is not just metaphorical, but what you see, and I believe it's part of the reason why God utilizes this language, is that when people are divorced from God and begin to pursue other idols, It does affect everything of their psychology, their identity, their family, their relationships, their sexuality, and their procreativity. In other words, it begins to multiply. You know why the enemy is so interested in grabbing hold of people in terms of sexuality and relationships? Because it's a multiplying principle. Sex is how more people get made. Now, that may seem so evident and fundamental that... It almost begs the question, why even uh, make that statement? And after all, many of the things that go wrong in people's sexuality or family relationships don't necessarily have anything to do with reproducing children. That's not the only thing that gets reproduced in relationships. There's a spiritual dynamic, and that also reproduces. It's the principle of what is sown and what is grown, and so every aspect of carnality can be used metaphorically to describe people being unfaithful to God. Idolatry can be described as sexual infidelity or carna- carnality. It can be described as greed. It can be described as, uh, as uh, um, enslavement. And the scriptures use all of these metaphors. But you'll see that there is a particularly pronounced focus on the idea of an unfaithful wife in terms of the people of Israel. And that's because God has basically said, I want to marry you. I want you to be bound to me in covenant. And what God is saying is, you've broken that covenant, and the way that you are relating to these false gods around you is going to multiply in your life and affect generation after generation. And here we see it literally at the beginning of chapter three. The Israelite people marry their daughters off to Canaanite husbands, and they receive Canaanite husbands. For, uh, for their daughters, and they receive Canaanite wives for their sons. And so there's an intermingling of the people, and there's an intermingling of the populace. Now, please, don't make the mistake that some people in the past have, have embarrassingly made, and it's, it's uh, so fundamentally flawed that uh, it's shocking that people would come to this conclusion. This is not about God uh, somehow trying to advance some kind of program of uh, criticizing miscegenation, so called, or the intermingling of races or anything like that. There's, There's one race in the eye of God, and that is the human race. There's many different ethnicities and nationalities. The intermingling of the people is not a problem because of where they come from or what language they speak. It's a problem because of what they worship. It's the intermingling of ideas and ideologies and idolatry with the people of God. What God wants is for his people to be salt and light in the world. He knows there's going to be an impact from people to people. He's, what he wants is not his people to be isolated away in some corner like a light under a bushel, but rather for them to be pure. He wants them to re- retain the reality and wisdom of his word. And the purity of his light so that they can be a witness in the world. That's what he wants for you and I too. And if the people of ancient Israel were plagued by the problem of the influence of the cultures and the ideas around them, guess what? So are we. And the solution to it is not to become isolated but rather to become concentrated with Jesus at the center of it all. Focused on his word and his ways so that we can avoid the judges cycle in our own lives because in fact this cycle does show up in our lives. The cycle is people turning away from God, often when things are going well. The more that they have, when they achieve a victory, when they have more affluence, when their right hand is feeling strong, their right hand goes off in the other direction. Remember what Jesus said? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. What Jesus was saying is, if walking in your own strength, is leading you away from God, then better that you should weaken yourself and die to yourself and lean into God so that you can get back on the right path. Because frequently when we think that things are going well, we feel good and strong. We walk away from the Lord. And God uses negative experiences to bring his people back to him. So God says, all right, you're going to marry those gods those idols around you, and you're going to trust in what those people trust in, you're going to be subject to the power of those idols and to the people who adore them. And those people don't love you like I do. They're going to bring burden on you, and they do. There's warfare. There's thievery. There's devastation in the society. The people call out, oh, God, help. And the Lord anoints with his spirit a judge who will call the people back to him, remind the people of who he is, not through their great strength, but instead God will use people whose weaknesses or whose idiosyncrasies make it quite evident that this person is victorious because of God so that the people will know the way that you can live victorious is in God. And so the people come back to the Lord and the judge achieves a victory and there's peace. But when things get good, the people turn away. This is a cycle that isn't just in the book of Judges. It's also throughout the scriptures. And we see it particularly in what the prophets say to the the children of Israel. But you and I can see it in our own lives today. And that's one of the reasons why we're studying this. So let's ask this question. Why would people then, why would people now be prone to this cycle? I mean, it seems so self-evident. You can look at it and identify the problem. And so why wouldn't people just change their behavior? In fact, what drives this behavior to begin with? If you have a God who has delivered you as an entire nation out of slavery in the most dramatic of ways, all of those plagues that came upon Israel, the parting of the Red Sea, for heaven's sakes, and God providing for His people in the wilderness, they don't have food, they don't have water. For 40 years, God gave them food, God gave them water. He was there visible, fire at night, A cloud of smoke in the day. His voice booming from the mountain. Sometimes people say, if I had experiences like these, then I would believe in God and I would never go astray. And I tell you what, that's not true. It's quite evident that God can do miraculous things right in front of people's faces and they still don't believe. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and people still don't believe after 2,000 years. Why else would we remember a man from first century Palestine. People say, well, he never even existed. Well, then, if that's the case, it's really rather extraordinary that so many people have died for him. That they gave their lives back in the early days of the church when there was nothing to be gained by it. People who lived at the time where if he didn't exist at all, they would know it. People living in Jerusalem who died for him. No, it's not reasonable to believe that he never existed, and it's absolutely unfathomable to to consider how it is that he has such an imprint on our world, unless indeed he is the Son of God. So why would anybody not worship such a God? Because there are things that draw us away. Will you say these four things with me? Influence. Influence. interest, Interest. Indulgence. Insolence. Insolence. Let's look at them. There's a pervasive pattern of the people surrounding Israel. So they've come into this land, the promised land, but there's all kinds of city-state tribes that live in the land as well or around them. And they have their culture of worshiping various false gods, the Baals and Ashtoreths, all these different uh, uh, gods and goddesses that they worship. And there's a cultural peer pressure now, you and I might look at that today and say, I'm not influenced by Baal. I'm not influenced by Astra." But what are you influenced by? The wisdom of the world. The way the world thinks. The ideologies and popular opinions that drive this world have tremendous power to imprint upon us. <laughs> I saw this on Instagram this week. You know, often people... Uh, especially people dedicated to what we might call secular humanism, look at Christians, that's the person with the cross in their heart, somebody who's been imprinted by Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ and the presence of his spirit in us. And people look at the the religious person, quote, unquote, and say, boy, they brainwashed you. (laughs) The church has just led you by the nose. You are so brainwashed by all that church teaching and religious thinking, and you worship some sky god from the ancient era of the desert. And the person says, Really? I'm the brainwashed one? Because the reality is, the people who are dedicated to the ways and the thinking of this world are absolutely inundated with ideologies and thoughts and thinking patterns that they accept by faith. It isn't so much that there is uh, a group of people that are believers and then there are non believers, Uh, everybody is a believer, everybody is a worshiper. The question is not whether you worship or not. It may be whether you know that you worship or not, but I guarantee you, you are a worshiper. You are an extraordinary worshiper. Your whole life has been filled with powerful worship. It doesn't matter who you are. I guarantee you, it's true of you. It's true of me because we are worshipers. That's what we were made to be. The question is not whether you worship. It isn't whether you believe. It's who you worship. It's what you believe. Now, there's a variety of images here, and uh, some of them are self-evident, and some of them you might go, what the heck is that? The point of the image is not to degrade these, uh, the, these organizations per se. Some of them are probably fairly worthy of critique, but the point is not to say, oh, these are all bad things per se, but to say, these are things that shape people's thinking, and often they don't even realize that those ideologies are working in the background, like code in a computer, and burrowing into the way that they think. Actually, what Jesus does is not try and lead you into some dark area of dogma where he can fool you. And if there have been religious leaders that have done that, and it's not a question of if, of course there are, then there are leaders of all stripes that do that. But it isn't the point of the faith. The word of God doesn't try to pull the wool over your eyes. It tries to actually part the veil and bring revelation So you and I need to be careful about the influence around us. And also, we need to consider, what are we interested in? Where are we investing our time? What is it that we spend time looking at and thinking about? Are we interested in the Word of God? I was at a a party last night, and I met a, a little boy, probably six or seven years old, and his mother was telling me he loves to read the Bible. I said, what a great habit to have at that age. That's pretty unusual, but I want to encourage it. I said to that young man, I hope you will keep reading the Bible every day. And when you do, do you sense the love of the Lord for you? And he said, Yes. Now, you might say, Oh, that's just a little kid, but I tell you, I believe in the sincerity of what he was saying. Now, I, not all of us have had that experience when we were young, but any of us can have it no matter what age we are. If we say, I want to know the word, I want to know the Lord. I want to get closer to him. Does that interest you? Many people would say no. Israel was very curious instead about these other gods. Why do these people worship them? What can Baal do? What can Ashtaroth do, right? What can Dagon do? They were gods of things fertility. I'm not able to have children. Oh, but this God can make me fertile? Then let me get to that God. Oh, this God will give big crops? Oh, this God will protect against droughts? Oh, this God gives military success? Oh, this God knows how to give you what? The Kama Sutra, the great pleasures of the flesh? Let me find out about that God. Some of these gods had prostitutes in their temples. It's holy. And so you go and pay for sexual relations and it's all under the wash of this is a righteous thing to do because it's about serving a God. Of course it's unrighteous, but it's quite interesting, isn't it? So Israel's curiosity about these wayward ways and alternative beliefs outweighed their ambivalence about God and their ignorance. Why would I want to learn this word? It calls me and commands me to do all these things. Wouldn't it be easier to just go make a blood sacrifice at some slab where I don't really have to care about that God because that God doesn't have any claim on my life? Apathy and ignorance about God, curiosity about the things of the world around them, and perversity, carnality, greed, and probably most of all, the desire to control, like I've just described, areas of their lives that they felt like, I want some kind of result. Why does somebody go to the, to the, uh, the fortune teller? Are you doing that? Stop. The fortune teller isn't telling your fortune. The fortune teller is for you that, that prostituted spirituality, When God sees you going to the fortune teller, he says, you're like a whore picking up a trick. That that might sound really intensely, almost perversely obscene. That's the way the scripture talks. God says, if you want to go to the fortune teller to find out your future, then your future lies with that fortune teller. But what can they really do for you? If you want to find your fix through some kind of drug or through some kind of bottle. If the way that you feel like you can be in control of the world is through your newsfeed or through the way you you dominate your workplace, then those things become gods to you. Idols. And people lust after them because there's power and influence that's very appealing in that. And people can become very proud I'm not gonna relent in this way. In fact, as the generations ensue, and more and more people live away from the Lord, they live into a different mentality, into a different spirituality, and the things of that idolatry around them become syncretized, mixed in. And they, they can even be proud about it. Now you've probably seen this. Religious traditions that are not based in the Bible, that are not reflective of Christ, but people are absolutely dedicated to them. This shrine where people were healed. Maybe somebody was healed there, maybe they weren't, but the shrine has become the focus. This activity, this festival, this idol that we parade in the streets. Why? It's part of our tradition. It's part of our culture. Well, cut it out. That's toxic tradition. I don't care how many generations have done it. I don't care how your parents and grandparents said, hey, this is the best thing. You've got to look at it through the eyes of God. And God says, that has nothing to do with me. And if it doesn't have anything to do with me, it doesn't have anything to do with faith. And anything that is not of faith is sin. And it's not that God is, again, offended by that because of his own ego. It's God saying, that's pulling you into bondage. And God wants his people to be free. So we understand this in the lives of the people in the Bible. How about in our lives? Let's turn the lens on us. What influences me more? I want you to ask yourself this. Jesus and the word of God, or the word of the world? Your reputation among people. How many times have you failed, or I failed, to be salt and light in the world because we were afraid of what the world would think if we said what Jesus says? People say, well, I like Jesus because he's loving and kind. He also speaks very sternly about the wrath of God. Do you know that? Are you willing to look at that? Because you don't know Jesus if you don't know that. And Jesus, when he speaks about wrath, speaks with warning. Watch out. Don't ignore this. That's not a popular statement. What matters to you? What God thinks or what the world thinks? Where is your interest? Are you dedicated to learning about God's ways? Do you make time for God? Do you sacrifice other things to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer, to listen to the Lord, to come to church, to worship the Lord? Which would you rather have playing in your car or in your uh, your earbuds? something that is teaching you about the word of the Lord or some worship or just secular things. Listen, I I don't always read the Bible. I don't always, I mean, I watch secular films. I listen to secular music too. Sometimes I think that some of it's not so good for me. Are you sensitive to what the Lord is saying to you about what you're listening to? But one thing to consider is, even if there is a mix, where does the weight go? And be careful because you might say, oh, I'm more influenced by the word. Is that what God sees? Ask him. Is there anything that you think, well, I don't need to ask him about that because the reality is you don't want to look at it. He still sees it even if you're not looking at it. But your blind eye can be a point of indulgence. Are you willing to recognize that there might be things in your life that God finds disgusting? It doesn't mean you're disgusting. That's what the devil will tell you. Oh, God is disgusted by you. He's not disgusted by you, but he is disgusted by your behavior or mine. Because sometimes we do disgusting things. God is upset when you are cruel to someone else. God isn't happy when you lie or misrepresent the truth. God knows when you're indulging fantasies in your mind, even if no one else sees them. God knows and he's unhappy because he knows that it's an idol that will control you. And he'll give you help. But if you're too proud to ask for it, if you're unwilling to accept it, If your insolence says, I don't need that, I don't want that. There are people who say, you know, don't tell me that God is good. Look at all the bad things that are done in the Bible and God just looks on uh, or even approves or calls people to do it. And their pride is, I'm better, I know better, I understand better. Are there practices or patterns in your life that control you, even if they come out of a tradition that you think is good? Are you too proud to turn those things over to God and let Him decide? Let God be the judge, because God is your deliverer. So these deliverers that we're going to be looking at in weeks ahead are people who actually stand in the place of God because God's Spirit is upon them to anoint them. Today, having uh, already looked at this uh, section of uh, Uh, the introduction of the Judges Cycle, I want to remind you that the Judges are a way for us to see God at work in our world through people like us. I mentioned that the Judges Cycle is something that shows up as a a concept even in the era of the prophets. Isaiah says, in the night I search for you. Here's interest, right? I'm looking for you, God, day and night. I'm not looking at the things of the world. In the morning I earnestly seek you. This this indicates, I don't want to indulge my own appetites. I want to feed and feast on you. For only when you come to judge the earth will people learn what is right. When you come to judge the earth, Lord God. So it's the righteousness of God that we are hungering and thirsting for. And Jesus said, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for that, because you'll be given it. Many of us may feel anxious, weary, weary. Running scared is the phrase I shared with the pastoral team when we met yesterday. But in Proverbs, what we are told is the wicked, they're running scared even when no one is after them. Now, the enemy is like a lion prowling around, so the enemy is always after you. But in other words, the wicked have no rest. There's no peace in the way of the world. For all of those enticements and for all the power that is being dangled out, it's all just a lure. There's a hook behind it. And once you're on that hook, you're being reeled in, running, scared. But when the righteousness of God is ruling in your life, then you will have the confidence, the boldness, the strength of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But it's not your right-hand strength. It's not how smart you are, how good-looking you are, how rich you are, how talented you are, how young or old or whatever. It's the left-hand of leadership. You're a left-handed lion. Because you know that you are relying on the Lord. These are the left-handed lions that start out the book of Judges. Let's look at their stories quickly before we conclude today. Othniel, whose name actually means lion. Lion of God. Ehud, who is actually left-handed. And Shamgar, who is kind of a leftover in the text. But he's got a lion's share of glory. Because after almost 3,500 years we're still speaking his name because of how God used him and brought him fame. Lessons from these three men. In Judges 3, we're first told about Othniel, who's kind of a holdover from the Joshua generation. Now, here you can see the cycle is at work. Joshua's generation has come to its end, and the Israelites are doing evil in the Lord. They forgot their God. They're serving the Baals and the Asherahs. And so God gives them over to this king, King Kushan, Rishaphaim, of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelis were subject for eight years. So there's an oppressing power for eight years. And finally, this cycle, which is pretty quick, although eight years is a long time, that's like a two term presidency, and it's a bad news for them because it's not a democratic <laughs> administration. They cry out to the Lord, and he raises up for them a lion of God. Now, the weakness of Othniel is not immediately evident. In a way, the weakness of Othniel is best described by this. Othniel has strong faith in the Lord. Remember, he's a nephew of Caleb, and uh, he's been um, married into a great inheritance. The weakness is the world he lives in, that his own people have turned away. The weakness is that he's an outlier, a leftover of a previous generation. But he's going to stand on the things of the Lord, even in the midst of a people who have forgotten them. And so the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he becomes Israel's first named judge. Although I like to remind us that in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord is effectively the first judge. But the first of the 12 human judges that are described is Othniel. And when he achieves his victory in military strength, the land has peace for 40 years. So eight years of bondage, oppression, 40 years of peace. (laughs) That's a pretty good um, return on investment, I guess you could say, right? You would think that that would be enough to keep them on track. So what's the lesson that we can see from this lion-hearted warrior, Othniel? As I mentioned, the name means lion of God. It's not just lion, but lion of God. His strength is not from who he is, but from whom he belongs or to whom he belongs. Like all of the judges, it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit that makes him strong and gives him victory. And being connected to the Joshua generation, Othniel also is a demonstration to us of the importance of remembering what people have forgotten. Remembering the Bible, remembering Christ, remembering God. Even in your own life, it's not just cultural. How about you look back at the ways in which God has been there for you? Remember the ways in which he's helped you. It may be easy for you to to create the list of how God wasn't there for you. He actually was. You probably just didn't see it. But take some time to remember when God has solved a problem for you or answered your need. Because by remembering, you will enhance your worship and reliance on him, and his strength will be given to you. God doesn't lead us into an overcoming life where we just sit back on the lap of luxury. That's what the idols promise. Serve us, and it'll be good with you. God says, follow me and it's going to be hard. In the world, you will have troubles. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And in fact, what the scriptures teach is the trials that God allows in our lives are the very tests that refine us. It's through the life and its challenges that God actually gives us the victory of overcoming. Now, in Egud, we have a left-handed leader. So again, he's a surprising character because he, he does things in unexpected ways. Once again, the cycle repeats. It's spiraling down. The Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now the Lord gives them over to Eglon, who's the king of Moab. And then the uh, Ammonites and the Amalekites join forces with him. So you have a variety of these surrounding tribes that are attacking Israel. They take possession of the city of Palms, which may or may not be Jericho. It's a common name for Jericho, but the... Location seems to be a little lost, so we're not exactly sure. But it seems to be a significant city in Israel at the time. If it is Jericho, then that would be particularly devastating because you'll remember that Jericho is where Israel had its first victory entering into the Promised Land. So it's like at their very point of strength, they are attacked. And then they become subject to Eglon for 18 years. Oppression increasing. And then again, they cry out to God and God gives them Ehud. Now Ehud is a left-handed man, and this is mentioned in the text, A, because it shows us the uniqueness of the people that God chooses, and as I've mentioned, it it underlines that this is a man who's gonna have to rely upon the Lord, but also because God uses this precise aspect of his personality, which is relatively unusual, to give him victory. They had to present tributes to the to the oppressor king, sort of like taxes. But it was a way of saying, yeah, you're over us and we, we give our resource to you. And so Ehud has been chosen to bring the Israelite tribute to King Eglon of Moab. When he gets there, he goes to Eglon and he says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Now I mentioned the book of Judges is kind of uh, blue, and there seems to be a bit of an undercurrent here that Ehud may be appealing to Eglon in more than just a tribute way. I've got a secret message with you. I'd like to meet with you privately. And Eglon says, hmm, I'm interested. And so they go upstairs to his own private chambers where they can be alone. Ehud reaches with his left hand. In East Middle Eastern culture, This is the hand that is used for uh, the restroom. It's also the hand that is approved for touching of the genitals. Ehud is reaching into his garments with a hand that indicates that he may be about to bring something out. I trust you understand. What he is going to bring out with his left hand is a sword because he's left-handed. And he has strapped it to his inner thigh. So the king and he are very close when he surprisingly brings out this blade and thrusts it into the belly of the king in such a graphic way that the scatological text is almost embarrassing to describe. But basically, there's a disembowelment in the most kind of foul way, and the king is left utterly disgraced. Now, this is not to say that, 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 that you and I should get some kind of purient uh, you know, uh, charge out of the wildness of the scene, but rather to recognize that this is an extraordinarily depraved ruler, and the kingdom and culture that he is ruling in is one in which standards have all gone a kilter. The carnality of Eglon is implied throughout the text, and the cleverness of Ehud is descriptive of God's response, which is to say, you think that you've got everything. Under control, and you think that what's coming your way is something that you like, but what's coming your way is the sword of the Lord, which is a symbol of the Word of God, the truth of God. And if you are opposed to the things of God, that truth is going to pierce you. And what flows out of Eglon, quite frankly, is described in the text it stinks. Eglon is filled with something fetid, with something rotten. And the word of God and the judge of the Lord is revealing it. And it's the demise of Eglon and the end of that wicked rule. But there's a shaming going on here. And the Lord allows it because what Eglon represents is shameful. And the way that he has ruled, the way that he has oppressed... And his pride in the face of the reality of who God really is is all worthy of being shamed. God wants the truth and the light to shine upon it. Eglon's heritage is this he's locked in the room. Ehud has, has escaped through a rear way. And the, the servants are all waiting outside and they, they don't know why the king is taking so long. Why are they so hesitant to go in? Because they know he's in there with the. With he's entertaining. We can't go in. But we're concerned. It's been a long time. There seems to be the implication that it's starting to smell. Maybe he's in the restroom, so they wait even longer. It's the king. Finally, they can wait no more. Get the master key. They open the door. And there he is, piled on the floor in the evidence of his own failure. Meanwhile, Ehud the left-handed lion of God is out blowing a trumpet representative of worship. And he is saying, look, God has fallen the mighty. God has revealed the unworthiness of this oppressor. Now follow me and God will give the enemy into your hands. And so the people of Israel follow him and there is victory. And then Moab, which had been the oppressor becomes subject to Israel and the land has peace for 80 years So while there was longer oppression, there's also longer peace. What can we learn from Ehud's story? I've mentioned that in the handedness of Ehud, we see some deeper understanding of what's actually transpiring in this scene. But we also see God's affinity for choosing the unexpected to represent him to choosing people who may have idiosyncrasies that have left them out. Maybe Ehud wasn't the one that you chose when you were picking sides in gym class in ancient Israel because they thought, well, I don't know if this guy is going to be able to Get the win for us. God says, I'll use him to get the win. Maybe you have things that have made you disfavored or feel like you're less than. And God would say to you, if it's not something unrighteous, but it's just an idiosyncrasy that you maybe feel embarrassed about or you feel left out because of, and God says, I will use that because I will use you because I'm interested in people who, who are willing to be used by me and ready to give thanks. The name Ehud means, I will give thanks. When he achieves the victory, he blows the trumpet, and he gives praise to God and rallies the people to the call, and that's how victory is brought in. You know, Eglon could have had a different end if Eglon would have been willing to serve a different God. It's not that we look at Eglon and say, I'm so much better than him. It's that we look at God and realize he's so much better than us. And so where God sees humility, God grants victory. He will elevate the humble. God forgives the ungodly not because they are good, but because he is good. You and I are saved by grace. We should blow the trumpet too. The enemy has been defeated. His shame is visible for all to see. He thought that he was lifted high, but he has fallen low. And the stink of who he is and his lies are now visible in the light of day, but the strength of his arm is cut off. So praise the Lord. And if you will praise the Lord, he'll give you victory too. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Now a footnote to finish the sermon. Shamgar. After Ehud came Shamgar. And in one verse, the totality of the judgeship of Shamgar. I mentioned to you that there are these minor judges, which simply says, not that they were less important, but we get less information about them. And almost like a literal footnote at the bottom of the chapter, even though the chapterizing only came later, we are told in one verse that Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. What you can assume is that in the days of Shamgar, there was also a turning away from God and a crying out in need, and that Shamgar also achieved peace for the nation. What is an ox goad? It is something that you use as a stick to goad the oxes on, right? Like the carabao. You get the animal to go in the direction it's supposed to go. In a way, Shamgar is an ox goad in God's hand. But an ox goad is not a weapon. All right? It's a farmer's tool. It's an implement of agriculture. It's certainly not the kind of weapon that you would face off against 600 army with. Especially when that army is well armed with all their iron weaponry. So it's a weakness to be a farmer facing an army with only an ox goad. But that's the kind of weakness that God will use if in your weakness there is worship and trust in the Lord. So Shamgar is a leftover judge in the sense of the smallness of the text. Using a leftover lance. Something that was available in the barn but in the hand of God can be used for victory. Interestingly enough, the name Shamgar in Hebrew means sword. The very thing that Shamgar is named for is the thing that he doesn't have and the thing that you would think you need. It's the days of oppression. There's an army facing against us and what we need is a weapon. (laughs) Those who live by the sword die by the sword, but those who trust in the sword of the Lord, anything available to you is powerful when you are available to God. So in this footnote footnote of a verse, Shamgar actually makes a dramatic footprint for history. (laughs) We're still talking about him. This improvised implement becomes the instigation of God's judgment in the world. And he fulfills his call. He fulfills his name by being the Lord's sword against oppression. God empowers the available. Jack Hayford, Pastor Jack said that the Lord loves his people. It's the Lord who is the one who rescues, delivers, and finishes what we could never do ourselves. It's the Lord who is the judge. How do these judges become judges? The spirit of the Lord is on them. The spirit of the Lord is in them. And that spirit is Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus Christ is in you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can be. And his spirit will be in you. And there is no other way of life because life eternal is only found in him. But also, in this present moment, the great I am wants to give his strength to you and impart his purity to you. Now, it's not easy to follow the Lord. And it is scary. And it calls us into conflict. Not... That we are called to go out there and raise a sword and fight people. We don't battle against flesh and blood. But we do stand in the middle of a world that is arrayed against the things of God. And we are facing off against spiritual powers, invisible in this world, but real in the realm of the spirit. And as we step into the fray of that spiritual battle, in our prayer, in our witness, in our own acts of faith and trust in the Lord in the midst of all the challenges of our lives... We need to remember with confidence, Pastor Jack says, that our commander, the commander of the armies of heaven, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, not only gives us a place of safety in him and confidence for that spiritual battle, but he places his sword of his word in our hands. You might be nothing more than a humble farmer, if it were, but the sword of the Lord is in your hand. He's the one who will put it in your heart and in your hand. But you've got to read it. You've got to believe it. You've got to pray about it. But when you do, God will show you where to start. Where is there a need for a revolution in your life? Where is there a place for witness in your world? Where is there an oppression that you're calling out to God for help? And what he says is, I want to anoint you to be the victor. He'll show you where to start, and it's right where you are. There is something in your life, in your world, right now, today, that God can show to you as a place to begin the liberation, the release, the victory. And He will give you what you need. You can even use what you have, because when it's given over to Him, His strength will be in it. His strength will be in you. Start where you are, just like Othniel, because he remembered the tradition of the Joshua generation, the promise of the word. He knew who he was. I am a lion of God. You're called also. Wherever you are, God is with you. And you have a call. Remember that. Amen. Take strength in that. And then do what you can. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It's your weakness that will be a witness. Just like Ehud, the thing that makes you unique or unusual, maybe the thing that made you an unlikely candidate for leadership or for influence is exactly the thing that God is going to use to reveal his victory and to shame the enemy. And finally, trust that God will use you. You might feel like... No one knows who I am. I'm just down here in one verse at the bottom of the chapter. But God sees you, and there can be a mighty victory that produces a mighty result over an outnumbering enemy simply because God is enough, and God is more than enough. There is a God in Israel. Is there a God in your life? I assure you there is. There may be many gods, but if they are not the I am, it's time to topple those idols. And stop investing in the very thing that is perverting, that is destroying, that is capturing your life. That depression doesn't come from God. Stop serving it. You say, well, it's a, it's a diagnosis. Then let God produce the prescription in you that brings release. Because I promise you, God can overcome depression God overcomes anxiety. God overcomes cancer. God overcomes autoimmune diseases. God can change your identity, your orientation, your confusion, your relationships, your role, your career, your studies, your grades. Whatever the issues are in your life, God is enough and more than enough to bring victory. But it's time to worship him in order to receive from him the spirit of liberty. Lord, we come to you with our lives today and we pray that as our lives are penetrated by your word, you don't find something, Lord, that is foul in your nostrils. And yet what we know is there are things, Lord, that run afoul of your ways in us, our behaviors, our predilections, our pastimes, the people in our lives and the way that we relate to them there's plenty of things, Lord, that if we are really going to look honestly and I pray that the light of your truth would shine in us now, we would realize there's problems in the way we think, act, behave. In what we believe. Maybe there's ways in which we've been too interested in the things of the world, in which we've been too influenced by alternative beliefs or traditions. Or we've just become so subject to the commands of the culture or the desires of our flesh or the fears of our heart. We call out to you now, Lord. With repentance we say, forgive me for the ways I've turned away from you. Forgive me for the ways in which I've dishonored you or hurt others. Give me the strength to see that, Lord, the wisdom to confess it. Give me, Lord, the courage to make right where I can anything that I've done wrong. But most of all, Lord, I ask you to cut down the idols in my life and to raise yourself up. Lord Jesus Christ, We come to you. Will you repeat these words after me? If you hear them and can say them, say them. Lord Jesus, you are God and you are holy. I repent of my sins and I ask you to cleanse me. I believe you can use me. And I want to worship you. I give my life my choices my relationships to you do what you want to do in me and I will give you praise amen the Lord is here and the I am is at work let his grace and strength be alive in you today and let his word be in your heart and in your mind and in your mouth every day. Join together with his people and let the strength of the faith of the Lord be revealed in your weakness and adored in your humility and seen in your world because Jesus is alive in you. Thank you, church, and God bless you.